Tonight we're going to talk about the process of streaming, but not streaming from the other internet, (laughs) streaming from the internet of your mind, or what it means to be wakeful in our lives in the stream of what's actually happening. And the way that we wake up to our streaming nature is by becoming mindful of the arising and passing nature of all of our experiences. And what's so beautiful about a long retreat like this is you have a lot of time in the middle where you couldn't make anything permanent if you tried. And many of you have tried and tried. (laughs) Can I elongate this? Is this one of the things I keep in a pocket? Can I repeat this? Can I even influence what's happening? Wow. Things have this uh, nature of their own. And it's one of the things we wake up to, which is part of the delusion we have in daily life is we feel this intuitive agency in daily life that gets thwarted all the time, so we double down our empowerment and agency. But that puts us at odds with actually being in the stream of what's happening. There's a lot of egoic will trying to override. And we actually live in a liquid universe, but our egoic minds take the liquidity as permanent And they get away with it as long as they do. And then they're disoriented when all the things that we're connecting through uh, have impermanence as their inherent nature. So that can be frustrating when we come on retreat and we're hoping from that daily life view that we will gain some type of mastery and command over our minds. And therefore, we will be able to insist what mood we're in, where we put our attention, what we're taking in, what memories we want to get let go of. For my first three retreats, that was definitely what I was trying to do. And I heard the teachers talking, 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 talking. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of interesting. That really does map onto my experience. But boy, this many days to sort out my thoughts, that's excellent. I can really think through things, finally get it set, put that there. Get this thought through, put that there. I kind of know what my mom and dad and my friends will say. This is how I'll respond. Get that all organized and finally just have like everything where I want it so I can go through life and finally have a prepared response to the chaos because I always seem to be a little bit confused. And so I have thought through it and thought through it and thought through it. And they said, come back to your breath. And I was like, eh, okay, yeah, it's a little bit neutral. But really sorting out my thoughts was big. And that urge to get myself sorted out was a wrong view of daily life that I could sort myself out in that way. And a sense of frustration that I couldn't sort myself out yet. And other people looked really coherent to me. (laughs) But I felt really incoherent inside. So I was constantly kind of faking coherence and finding it extremely stressful to try to show up as a very coherent, trustworthy being, worthy of love and not worthy of people's... If people really saw behind the curtain, they would see what a mess was inside. So I was hoping that Dharma practice would eventually deliver me some type of control over myself. But what Dharma practice kept doing was making me more sensitive to how things actually are and how little... I'm lucky when I have influence, but most of the influence I have is to try to rest in the stream of what's happening and then see if I can influence what's happening towards what's uh, of the greater good or what reduces harm what cools off my own system from distracted, what helps it be attentive. But I never gain mastery over the stream. 
And again, you'll hear me refer back to this intuitive sense. When I was younger, I did a lot of living on rivers when I was uh, in my teens and 20s. And when you, uh, the very first day you get in a canoe or a kayak, if you haven't done it in a while, you can't help but say, I'm the paddler. I decide what's going to happen. Let me assert my control over this dynamic. And it's very frustrating. And you're fighting the river because the river pulls you one way, but you have a destination of your own. And slowly you begin to rest in the stream. We used to carry these incredible loads of food and gear on these canoes. Did like a 700-mile journey. And the river does all the work, and the buoyancy of the canoe does all the work. And our job is just to kind of stay in the current and miss the dangerous rock or do a little influence what's happening, but letting the river do most of the work. And that's what, that's, since that's what's happening, you can either fight it, which is frustrating and exhausting, or you can learn to navigate within the stream, the great stream that's happening. So that's where the Buddha's teachings point us, because it's one way that we suffer less. It also helps us wake up to actually see what's happening. And if you try to impose your, your egoic frame onto Dharma practice, it's very frustrating. You know, you're, again, have good practice, feel proud, validated, and then it all gets taken away. And then it's disappointing and faith goes down. And then you get something back and it's like, how do I hold on to this? And slowly over time, there's this, when I try to hold on, it's really painful. And I set myself up for defeat. When it goes, if I can learn to let it go, I don't suffer as much. So then this wisdom comes in over time. Uh, how do I rest in the waves of things that are out beyond my control but still see if I can have some skillful influence over what's happening. Aligning with that process, when that really clicks in and it becomes your default intuition, and it's not just a belief, but you actually see, wow, that actually maps on to what's happening, then you're working within the stream of how things happen. The stream of great conditions that are bubbling up, huge forces that are bubbling up, and then you find your own part in that stream and you see if you can at least get sane yourself. But then you could be an agent of the larger stream. Not an agent in terms of control, but bigger things might be working themselves through you. And you learn to rest still in that stream. That point of Entering the stream, being in the stream, being willing to be in the stream, not holding your breath that one day the stream ends and we get to actually have the control we're used to in daily life. Learning to let beautiful things happen and fade, and maybe you can extend them a little bit, but not in a way that attaches too much, to let it flow on. Uh, that's living in the stream. And it really does take something like a month-long Retreat. I think we can taste it on shorter retreats and have glimpses of it. But you've lived in the country. You've lived in the culture that's aimed at this type of sensing into how things work. And then that sensing started to see it's a ride. And we don't know what's going to happen next. That's largely up to vast conditions ripening. But we, we can have some influence over how we respond So again, the <clears throat> analogy is sort of uh, the existence, how liquid water works. Under these conditions, this liquid water is quite happy if we were to anthropomorphize it in this jar, in this shape. And I could pour this and immediately pour it into a metal cup, and you don't see the water like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> whoa, I was just getting comfortable. That's a nice shape. We finally got ourselves sorted out. The water just pours. And then it takes this shape. So it's happy to go from this shape, go through a radical transition, and end up in this shape. And it doesn't stress out. And then when I go to sip it, it's like, whoa, 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 we were doing containers. I got it. One container, another. As long as reality looks like a container, 
I'm sad. But now you're going to put me in a human? It doesn't have any resistance. Which is why if we anthropomorphize it, it doesn't suffer. If I had several clear cups up here and I put uh, rose petals in one, uh, very refined, uh, organic, uh, fair trade cacao with the right <laughs> with the right amount of sweetener in this cup, and then thumbtacks in this one, and then broken glass in this one, and I poured it, the water would fall into it. It doesn't resist. It doesn't peer over the edge and try to put on brakes. So that that's living in the stream. And that's what's happening. And you all now see, when you try to fight that stream, is exhausting. You doubt yourself, you try to gain control. It's turbulent. We have all these habits that are trying to grip and fight and manufacture a self that we finally want to have. And all of you are resting more faithfully in the stream of what's happening and then noticing there is still room for influence. You can cultivate things. If you cultivate mindfulness, you're more likely to catch what's actually happening in the stream. Someone could be, your mind could be irritated, but you're not aware of it. And by the time you're aware of it, it's already fixated on what it thinks the problem is. But if you're mindful and sort of ordinary breathing, and then you feel this mood coming over you that's irritable, as soon as you catch it that you're in the irritable mood, then when your mind goes to fixate, it's like, well, that's what an irritating mind does. But I don't believe that whoever irritated me caused the mood I'm in. But you have to, if you see that, then you can actually see what's happening and your influence will be over this mood came before the irritant came. Or my attachment to the quiet came and then somebody added noise to my quiet, my quiet, and my mind fixated on them. I didn't see that I was in the conditions of tightening on, condi on the conditions of silence so that when I was in that tight mind without perspective, uh, other sounds would irritate this possessiveness that I was uh, practicing in. So you're more likely to taste what's happening with mindfulness, and that helps you stay wakeful in the stream. When I was in, uh, in Burma, and we didn't have really quiet conditions like this, so there weren't so many conditions to get attached to, but it did make the samadhi, the concentration, the gathering of attention challenging. So I had to learn what is Dharma practice in these conditions and how do I practice in these conditions? And so there's so many teachings that sometimes my mind would get overwhelmed by the number of lists and the things being taught. So I needed something that could be simpler. And if I was influenced by something simple, would that roughly keep me in the flow of the Dharma? And so I had this little mantra to help me get through all the variations that were happening in Burma Knowing and flowing. Was I knowing or was I not knowing? And was I flowing or was I not flowing? And that word knowing can be a little bit of a hook because that sound, it could sound complicated. But it's just knowing enough, this is what's happening. It doesn't have to be very complicated uh, understandings, but I'm seeing this is the moment in time, this is what's happening. And am I flowing? And if I was flowing without knowing, sort of drifting down the stream and canoe hits rocks and you're just sort of, I'm definitely flowing, but I'm not knowing very much. Or I'm knowing, but I'm not flowing. That person pissed me off. That was pleasant. I want more of that. Ah, when's this going to happen? Okay. There's a lot of knowing happening, but very little flowing. So I would just practice, am I knowing, am I flowing? Am I knowing, am I flowing? It's like, okay, that brought a lot of teachings together in a simple coaching mantra, knowing and flowing. It's really the only way to be sane uh, when you're being stimulated by so many unknowns. 
So I was practicing once in uh, my little meditation hut. And it's finally like, okay, if reality fits within this, I know how to meet it. Relax, breathe, I'm used to the sounds, I'm used to the pains in the body, know how to soothe myself. Okay, like a soccer goalie or a hockey goalie, like I, I, I can catch the puck if it comes this way. And I was sitting, looking out a window with my back to the door, and I heard the door burst open, and I was just startled, like the puck came from behind me. <laughs> it, came, it, came out, it came out of the net and hit me in the back of the head. And I turned around, and it was a Burmese family coming in, and they wanted to offer me ice cream. Uh, and they had to do it before noon, or I couldn't eat it. So they were trying very hard to get it there, and they were just bursting with happiness, and they had found my cabin, they had come in. And so I was suddenly in a ceremony. <laughs> and I was like, I am not flowing. And I don't even think I'm knowing. Like, what is... What's the context here? It's like, okay, they're circling around me. This looks really natural to them. I'm just going to go with it. And they start producing ice cream. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. Uh, this is going to be. So let, I'm, I'm a guest in their culture. This is how things are done. I was just counting breaths seconds ago, but I'm in a ceremony so they hand it to me, and it's like, okay, you know, I want to be worthy of the gift and try to get the context straight. Put the ice cream in my mouth, and it was durian ice cream. <laughs> now, uh, maybe you don't know what durian is, or you've only heard about it. Some people love it, and some people don't. I happen to be one of the people who do not like durian, but like, I'll buy a lot. And so I was trying to be graceful, trying to enjoy their gift, be clear of it. I mean, just their, their faces were beaming. I was like, wow, we should do this in the States more. Just like suddenly sit in front of people and offer them ice cream. It's like, hey, that's how reality works. You're in the stream. But then it was durian. So I was like, oh my God. Wow, I can taste everything. And it's like I just put a, like a really bad sock in my mouth. Oh, that's hard. I have a whole bowl of it to go through. But they're being so kind. And this country has let me into what they cherish most. Knowing and flowing. Okay, let's go with flowing. Okay. <laughs> flowing, knowing. I don't want to fixate on the durian. I want to like tune into the gift. But there is durian in the picture. Okay. Ceremony, here it is, the gift. I ate it, they were very happy, and they left. And I was like, okay, that happened in Burma. And just <laughs> one more thing to kind of open up to. And I was like, yeah, that happens in reality. Like, okay, as long as my practice flows within this tube of my preferences, it's good practice. But if reality puts me out past the boundaries of what I think should or shouldn't be happening, I add suffering to it. So we're streaming. And the thing is, we're always streaming. That's one of the great things about this is that you don't have to make things stream and then be in accord with it. We're already streaming. You've been streaming. This universe has been streaming since the Big Bang. But you cannot be aware of it and frustrated by it. So imagine if you were in stop-and-go traffic, and you're like, this is the worst. So you take uh, spray paint. You're like, I love blue. Oh, that's so much better. But you start to feel this grinding shake to the car, and then this thud, and another grinding part. And you're like, it's definitely blue, but something is really agitating. I just don't know what it is. So we're in the stream, and we don't see the stream, which is why we get frustrated. But then we start misperceiving and blaming things uh, to try to get back into the tube of comfort where we're willing to have reality flow. It takes actually a retreat like this. It takes the power of practice to actually be in the stream, watch your old habits get frustrated, go through a little bit of a grief around the 
vulnerability of being in the stream. And then you see, it's actually not so bad being in the stream. And then these uh, gems start appearing like well-being, not because anything finally was under control, not because you claimed anything pleasant. There's a well-being in streaming. Now this next part is pure uh, fiction. So just take it as sort of imagery, but don't believe in this too much because I don't think it's, I don't know how true it is. But we were evolutionarily worms and fish for a lot longer than we've been mammal dwellers. So we started off evolutionary as just floating one cell organisms. Then we grouped into colonies and those colonies differentiated. But we were kind of weightless in water for a long time. Our whole template of body was worked out 550 million years ago. Then we crawl up on land, very close to the land, kind of our weight on the land. We push off the land. And then we're trying to figure out still how to live on land with land uh, objects, taking them for more permanent than our fishy intuition would say. But things are not as permanent as we perceive them. Okay, you can edit that out later. <laughs> that whole idea of evolution is just the way my mind proliferates. But coming into the stream of what's happening here and now, which is where we want to point our practice. We want to point our practice. That's what the stream is. The stream is this moment and this moment and this moment and this moment. And that's where we actually are in moment by moment experience. How do we train to align with the stream? That's living with the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path of having good ethical attunement that actually helps you stream and be conscious in the stream, making sure that there's ethical sensitivity. Having the development of samadhi, beautiful states of heart, harmonized, that helped with living in the stream. And then waking, wakefulness, perceiving correctly, understanding that you're in a stream, that helps you stay wakeful and flowing in the stream. So the Buddha called over Sariputta, his uh, chief teaching disciple, and he said, what are the supportive factors for becoming a stream entrant? And he said, the factors are associating with good people, check. <laughs> Listening to the true teaching, I'll let you check that box. <laughs> Proper attention, yoniso manasakara, as Don talked about. So aiming your attention well and practicing in line with the teachings. And the Buddha says, well said. And he said, what is the stream? That could be a big philosophical question. What is the stream? And Sariputta said, the stream is simply this noble eightfold path. Wise view, wise thought, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration or wise samadhi. The Buddha says, well said, that is the stream. And that's what happens when someone becomes a stream entrant is the eightfold path feels more intuitive. And yes, you can practice it and try to figure out how to practice it in more complex circumstances, but it's, it's your compass heading. Am I being ethically attuned? Am I cultivating beautiful heart states? And am I seeing clearly living with wisdom? That takes the eightfold path into these three categories, sila, samadhi, and panya. And that's how you're in the stream. The Buddha says, well said. And the Buddha said, what is a stream entrant? Again, could be a big philosophical discussion. And Sariputta says, anyone who possesses this noble eightfold path is called a stream entrant. So being guided by these eight practices Again, just for simplicity, 
put them in the three groups of sila, samadhi, and panya. If you're in that, you're in the stream. And the stream only heads in one direction towards liberation. So you don't actually have to get to the goal of liberation. You just have to practice sila, samadhi, and panya. You're in the stream. The stream makes it to the ocean. There's a community in Bozeman, Montana that I've gone to visit and teach in. And a big part of Bozeman, Montana is that the water that lands on the eastern side of the Rockies way up in Montana becomes the headwaters of what becomes a river that becomes another river that flows into the Mississippi and finally down to Louisiana. So you see these small streams and it's just a collection of rainwater that happened to make it over the mountains, the Rocky Mountains, collected and fell to the ground, gravity pulls it, and it's just doing its small bit. No raindrop uh, came down with a map. No raindrop had a plan of how to do a 2,000-mile flowing journey. It just had its nature, its liquid nature. Drop by drop, by its nature, it flowed. The flowing became a stream. The stream became a river. The river made it down to Louisiana. And then finally into the ocean. That's... good news because if our awakening was up to us i mean again have you seen us (laughs) if we had to actually figure it out like the buddha did and then enact our awakening uh, that would be very hard but we can come into simpler modes of being guided by ethical attunement guided by cultivating beautiful heart states guided by wise perspective if you are cultivating those three you are in the Dharma stream, and the Dharma stream only heads towards liberation. So again, that's sort of a big picture. How do we actually do that? And we come to the actual teachings in mindfulness about noticing arising and passing. So you're in the stream all the time, which means that every moment you're in is freshly arising. What our conventional minds do, as we've repeated, they take two similar moments in time and simplifies it to say the same. The map I had before, I can use that and basically navigate this new reality with this old information. It works well enough, and then we default back to having a simple relationship to a complex reality by just going to some conceptual intuitive map we have. When you heighten mindfulness, you heighten the sense that that map doesn't actually fit what's happening. There's enough freshness, moment by moment, enough uncertainty that if you're living from a map, you'll see it doesn't actually map on to your moment by moment experience. You walk in here, every sit, looking to have hopefully a good experience. But after a while, you look to come in and say, whatever experience happens, I hope to be open to it. Because I'm not open to it, that's the setup for where I get really frustrated. So our mindfulness practice draws us in. We learn that we can we don't get to have control. We have some influence. A lot of our influence is the attitude and perspective that we walk into sitting with, or that we walk down to a meal with, or that we open up to a new day with. Let the experience arise and see if you can meet what's arising. So you can do that consciously. The way you practice with that is you could be with your breath, you could be with your body, you could be watching Vedana. That's all good mindfulness, and that's part of mindfulness practice is to notice your body, notice Vedana changing, notice your states of heart and mind. But there's also in these same mindfulness teachings this constant refrain to see what's happening as it arises and then watch it pass. And that might be something that you're doing because it's happening. So you happen to notice passing experiences. You happen to notice arising experiences. But you can actually switch the mode of your mindfulness to take interest in the fresh arising. 
And that might look like a little coaching to kind of get the ball rolling. But then you can sit back and say, it doesn't so matter, it doesn't matter so much what's arising, but just notice time doesn't stop or stall. There's no pushing pause. Experiences keep arising. They keep arising. There's actually no stopping this. Experiences keep arising. New experiences keep arising. New experiences keep arising. And then if you wanted, you could whisper to yourself, just as a light coaching modality, arising, 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 arising in breath, arising out breath. I mean, it's going out, so you tend to go down, so arising sounds a little weird, but it's a fresh out breath, followed by a fresh in breath, followed by a fresh out breath. And the boredom comes when it no longer feels fresh, and therefore the mind wants to coast and say, it's not fresh, it's repetitive. And so you'll watch your mind not want to do this fresh orientation because it wants to sit back and say, close enough, same, little bored, but I'm resting. And so it does take a little prompting and you don't want to force it. You can't force the mind to take interest in this. But you're already in the stream of what's happening. And so it is a part of every moment. It is a flavor in every moment, just like there's always Vedana, there's always freshness of what's arising. Sounds like the same motor of the air blowing, very steady in the background, but that's fresh sound entering your ear. So that's a fresh hearing. You're looking in this direction, these are fresh sights coming in your eyes, even though they're similar to other experiences, you are experiencing them freshly. This fresh arising, fresh arising, when you can cultivate it, again, not force it, but welcome yourself to feel it, it starts to bring in marvelousness and adventure to what would have been ordinary moments because they're fresh. This isn't a dull repeat. This is a fresh moment like this. What's going to happen next? It's fresh, it's fresh, it's fresh, it's arising, it's fresh, it's arising, it's fresh, it's arising. Oh my God, it is fresh, it's arising. Look at all this fresh arising, 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 arising sights, arising sounds, arising heartbeats, arising body sensations, arising thoughts, endlessly arising thoughts, another thought, another thought, another thought, another day another thought, another breath. Wow. It's like this water fountain, or if you are where I grew up, a bubbler. This reality bubbler keeps bubbling up whole new fresh moments. And you can just sit there with your, with your senses resting in the arising. If it's pleasant to neutral, that's fine. One of the vulnerabilities we learn about being in the stream is that in that river will come unpleasant experiences. So that's one of the reasons we don't like being in the river is that we don't know how to meet unpleasant experiences. And that's one of the reasons why we don't necessarily want to relax into the river because we feel a little defenseless. With some Dharma practice, you can see those defenses never really worked anyhow. They were stressful, and they didn't actually keep unpleasant experiences from happening, but they were all you had. So we cling to these uh, egoic strategies, trying to maximize the pleasure or at least the neutrality and try to contain or prevent unpleasant. Here, you're just going about your day and unpleasant experiences happen. And it's not really your fault but it's part of the river, part of the stream. Unpleasant experiences happen. That's one of the costs of waking up to the stream is that you have to be intimate with unpleasant experiences. When you turn towards them and not keep trying to avoid them, unpleasant experiences are meetable moment by moment. 
And maybe you're starting to show yourself, prove to yourself that you can, if you can actually just meet the primary unpleasant experience, that's often doable. Breath by breath, I can meet this experience. But once I start to react to it, that's difficult. And then I elongate it through time. That's impossible. But if I can actually just take it breath by breath, it's transient. If I can do something about it, I will. But if I can't, then I just breathe breath by breath and its impermanent nature eventually removes it. So that's, that's a big cost of being in the stream. The thing is, we were already paying that price. We were already paying that price with worry. We were paying that price with anxiety after the fact. And we were paying the price with extra suffering during primary unpleasant experiences. So you tune into the arising, you're open to it, and then you see in that arising, a lot of it is fresh, a lot of it's neutral and familiar, some of it's pleasant, you can hang out in that arising, and then you'll notice the arising of unpleasant experiences. If you can do something about them, you would, you have that much influence, but a lot of it you have to kind of breathe your way through, and then it passes. No, no, uh, unpleasant experience can become permanent. And you get to see that for yourself. That might sound like a bit of a statement, but you'll look into it and you'll see it yourself. In all of the practices of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, each one is followed by, I see the arising, I see the passing, I see the arising and the passing. So then we turn into passing and we have to mature our relationship to passing. Most of us have a much more intrinsic anxiety around passing unless it's been unpleasant. But even then we just want to shoo something away. We don't watch something pass. We're just glad that it's passing. But passing is also an intrinsic taste of every moment. Otherwise, two, you couldn't have two moments arise and stay. If this moment stayed, there'd be no room for this moment. They'd crash. So just as much that's arising has to be passing, but not passing like I should see the wall fall away or I should feel something fall away. It's just experiences happen, and because it's a stream and a river, something else arises. And you're in the stream of arising. You're also in the stream of passing. This takes some inner well-being to actually tune into the amount that's passing all the time. If you don't have some samadhi to back yourself up, if you tune into passing, it's terrifying that there is no way to let anything last. Nothing has the nature to last. Everything has the nature that if it arises, it passes. So you can start coaching yourself, walk yourself up to the line and see, can I be mindful of endings? Now what you'll notice is that there's endings all the time, but we tend to go on to the next arising. So we actually don't become intimate with endings unless we have to. And then we're overcoming a lot of habits of resistance to tune into endings. So again, you could wait for big endings, the ending of a meal, the ending of a day. Those are very big endings. And you could start there, like, this is the ending. This is the ending of this lunch, this meal. This is the ending of a day. This is the ending of a sitting. If you tune into it, where it becomes medicinal is how much relief there is when things pass away. So that's why we get to sleep at night, because the day is past. And we can sleep deeply if we let go. And most of us like deep sleep, which means that some part of us is quite willing to let a day go so that we can enjoy that relaxation. Letting go is very peace-inducing. Letting go, uh, the passing of experiences, it's very soothing. Arising is energizing. Passing is relieving, relieving. Another way to practice with passing 
is you kind of rest on the in-breath and you might intentionally slow down the out-breath, but just feel the relief. There's a passing of a breath and it's peaceful. Breathing in takes effort, it's energizing, it's life-inducing, but we can't only breathe in. I like to tell uh, people a falsehood just to watch their reaction. And I know I shouldn't if I'm going to teach the Dharma. But it's just so funny. It's like if you're in an oxygen tent, you don't have to exhale. It's just one in-breath and then another in-breath because it's pure oxygen. You just breathe in. And I watch people's minds entertain that for a moment. It's like, oh, just breathing in. I would just breathe in. I breathe in again. I breathe in again. It's pure oxygen. Why would I have to breathe out? Breathe in. It's like, yeah, you could just keep adding oxygen. And because it's pure, just keep bringing it in. Little kids actually will go long on that. And I, that's fine because they live in the world of, of make-believe. But because we like gaining, if we were just had an oxygen mask, we would only have to breathe in. But the breathing out is so relieving. The breathing out is so uh, restful. And that's what, that's what ends up maturing when you mature your relationship to passing. At first, passing is a lot of loss. Passing means that things go out of existence. And so to our ordinary minds, passing can come with it, a sense of, I only want to gain, I want to control the gaining. If something passes because I'm letting go of it, I want things to have the nature to pass. But it's how this universe works. This universe is made by things arising, and nothing that arises gets to be eternal. So things pass. And there are very quick arcs of this, like in and out breathing. There are very long arcs, uh, like the birth of a solar system that blows up when the star blows up and then recollects into another star or another solar system. That's a very long arc. Our universe, you know, 14 billion years, is arising, and people are trying to wonder, what would the ending of our universe look like? It's very hard to even imagine. That's a very long arc, arising and passing. But if you reflect upon it, and you open your heart to it, and you see the relief of passing, then you can see it happens on all these different scales. And if you can appreciate the passing, it's another kind of intimacy. If, some, if you need something to last, you're not being intimate with it. So it's actually not a show of how grateful you are that something has arisen, that you then demand that it be permanent. Part of intimacy is that things arise and things pass. And can you be conscious and honor the passing part of nature, of all of us? We all have an arising, we all have a passing. In breath, out death, hours, days, lives. That's part of it. So again, you could bring this into your practice and say, I want to see if I can tune into passing. Passing. Oh, it is kind of quieting and relieving. Ooh, it just got bleak. Oof. Wow. <laughs> I, I had a good enlargement of the sense of how much is passing. Like, nothing gets to exist. Like, no, you're just tuning into the passing part. And if it gets too overwhelming, you turn back to the arising part. And it's like, okay, none of that passing stopped the next arising. A lot of arising, a lot of arising. Hmm, a lot of, lot of passing, a lot of passing. Now I can actually watch a rising and passing and appreciate the intimate ride and being intimate in the stream of actual phenomena because all phenomena have this taste, an arising part of the cycle and a passing part of the cycle. So that's just tuning into experiential arising and passing. If you go just a little bit deeper into uh, the Pali language and how arising and passing is described. First, you notice the arisings, you notice the passings. 
But then you're asked to watch out of what did something grow? How did something arise? You don't want to map it out cognitively. Right in the stream, you can see this moment was like this, this moment was like this, and this moment was like this. And in that, something arose. So you're starting to see how things arise. Simple things like hearing, if you have uh, ears that are sensitive and a sound, and your mind isn't fixated on something else, that's how sounds arise. There is a sound, it touches the ear, and then you're conscious of hearing. You can watch other things arise, like your moods, and that has a little bit more dharmic impact on whether you're going to suffer or not, because seeing when there is anger, when there's not anger, that is showing you that anger doesn't last. So if there is anger, there isn't anger. And that's a binary picture of no anger, yes anger. But then you can start watching the conditions out of which anger arise. And you see, if I cultivate these conditions, I'm much more likely to get angry. And if I cultivate these conditions, it's much harder for anger to arise. So <clears throat> this is a little deeper in when you get fascinated by arising, it might start showing you out of what does something arise. And sometimes anger comes because it's just an old habit. And sometimes anger comes because it is preceded by something. And what is anger preceded by? What is fear preceded by? What is joy preceded by? Most of us aren't paying attention enough to know the ingredients. It's sort of like there are brownies. That's awesome. Boy, it'd be great to have more brownies, but I don't know how they arise. <laughs> so I just say, you gotta wait for there to be more brownies. It's like, oh, you buy the ingredients, you mix them, you bake them, then there are brownies. Ow, all that buying and mixing and baking, that produces brownies. Brownies don't just spontaneously appear unless you're young. So, all of our moods and emotions, they come from somewhere. And what the Buddha discerned, because he paid enough attention, is that our suffering comes from misperception. It comes from conventional perception that because something seems similar moment by moment, it has become uh, unchanging. So we see permanence where there is not permanence. Like, I don't know why, but I keep wanting to refer to this bell, such a tangible object. When this bell was new, it didn't have the ding marks around its lip. And everywhere it's been touched with this uh, striker, a little bit of paint is flicked off. So there's a little shiny metal right around the, the edge. You actually couldn't go back in time and find this bell because it wouldn't have the history that's manifesting how this bell is showing up now. That's true uh, for everything. Everything is arising in its fresh state as it is. Mindfulness tunes you into that. And in that intimacy, you get to see what were, what were the, the conditions out of which my suffering came. Is seeing permanence where there isn't permanence. It's seeing uh, refuge and satisfaction in something that's permanent. But because it's impermanent, it can't offer that. And a major part of our suffering is we keep adding an I am to the flow of experience. We keep trying to make an agent out of a river. We keep trying to make a, something lasting out of something that's made of streaming phenomena. It feels that way conventionally, so we assume it, we don't know how to question it. But it's something you can also notice, these are three characteristics of every moment. If you begin with appreciating impermanence, the other two grow. When you see one moment is different, one moment is freshly arising, I can let that be more pervasively true. That's something I can take refuge in. There's constantly something arising. In all that arising, nothing actually stays. Okay, there's passing, arising and passing. Okay, 
that means that the things I was trying to take refuge in never could have produced the refuge I was trying to find in them because they were liquid experiences. So that opens you up to the dukkha nature. Momentary experiences, they can only offer you what they can in that moment and then they've passed. And it tunes you into this sense that there is some type of non-liquid self going through liquid experiences. But my intrinsic sense is I'm the person who woke up this morning and I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I am the agent to which all this is happening. It feels that way, but you can start to notice that even that has a thickening and a thinning and times when it's not arising, this self-reference, and time when it's very thickly arising, then you can watch the arising and passing of this density of sense of self. And then if you're paying attention, simple things are so content-making when there isn't this dense sense of self. But then the self comes in and says, I gotta give myself more of this. Gotta put it on my calendar, my to-do list, I'm coming to more retreats. And then that moment is starting to get clogged up by the self trying to be happier, trying to add self to the equation. But if you can just let it be sights at the eye, sounds at the ear, body sensations in the body, tastes on the tongue, smells on the nose, a lot of concepts and moods in the mind. If you can just let that flow as it is without adding some type of lasting self to the picture, you're resting in the stream. So that also is maturing as we practice here. So we see the initial conditions that precede our suffering. We see the conditions that are there in our joy. So we're learning about how, what is actually worth cultivating. And it's much more of our attitude and approach and our wise perspective than any particular experience we're having. If we have wise approach, wise perspective, we don't suffer. We're adaptable to this very liquid, changeable universe. And if it happens to be in stable conditions, we don't accidentally harden in that. Like this water isn't slowly becoming ice saying, oh, I got it. It's like this. It's as soon as I shake it, the water moves. As soon as I pour it, the water pours. It never tries to own this shape for predictability and stability. That's what our mindfulness practice wakes up as well. We don't try to own any particular shape, any particular moment. We flow through it. And then it's not even like a lasting us that is flowing through it. We are also part of the flow. This body, this mind, they're flowing along. My internal experience is flowing. External experiences are flowing. It's all flowing. We don't actually have to look for something permanent in that to find ourselves oriented, to greatly reduce our suffering. It begins practically by becoming more mindful and then also seeing there is a rising and passing experiences as beyond my control to make specific things happen. But what I can cultivate is an attitude that's more willing to live in this stream of reality. And it's what a long retreat shows you that's very hard to see in daily life. It's very hard to walk around with conventional views of how permanent things are and then expect your daily practice to do all the heavy lifting to to dissolve all that. But you come on a retreat and there's just nothing here that you get to grab onto and you get to see that day in and day out. So it's a, it's a great blessing and the actual experience can be frustrating as we try to grab on to validating moments or produce a self out of this liquid experience that we finally get to take refuge in. And the refuge is in the changeability. The refuge is in the liquidity. The refuge is in our streaming nature. And that we actually have a mind that can conform to streaming. We have a mind actually that's quite liquid itself. We have a mind that's made of this liquid universe 
and itself can be quite conscious in its liquid form. So we don't try to take stances in the mind. Don't try to take repeatable stances in the body. Don't try to take stances externally. We flow through it. And yet in that fluidity, there's still influence, but the influence never tries to harden into control. That's where this arising and passing goes from being a little bit unnerving from an egoic perspective to the very taste of freedom is that you're liquid. And what does liquid do other than be in the moment it's in? And if it's shaken, it's agitated. As soon as it stops shaking, it settles. Takes this form, takes that form, becomes rain clouds, becomes rivers, becomes oceans, back to rain clouds. Passes through this human, through that human, went through dinosaurs, still going along, gets to be an ocean, gets to be a cup of water. It just never tries to finally solidify itself. It's in its liquid nature. So that's how we want to practice. We want to practice liquidity. We want to practice being in this liquid flow. And we want to know it, not overanalyze it, but just feel the fluidity. That's enough knowing. And then be flowing. And if you're suffering, chances are there's not really a flowing attitude. So knowing and flowing, arising and passing, but actually using your mindful sensitivity to actually feel it. There comes a moment as you get more and more oriented to this and the fear comes out of the equation that you can open up to deep passing. And deep passing is no longer haunting or terrifying. Deep passing is an exhale of peace. Now it's not deep passing because everything gets annihilated. It's just the releasing mind, the releasing mind, the mind that gets to breathe in and breathe out and release. And that's the simple anapana instructions. Breathing in, I knew I was breathing in. Breathing out, I knew I was breathing out. And I practiced letting go. Now, sometimes I imagine a big, quiet drain in front of me, and I just practice pouring things down that drain, not to get rid of anything, but just for a moment, release, release, release. Because I know it isn't permanent and I built a faith relationship to it, that I can actually give over everything I was holding for security. And for a moment, I release it all, release it all, release it all, release it all, release it all. And then there's this peace. And it's such a beautiful place to either just be in that peace. But from there, the arisings are so beautiful because they're not clogged up by all the things you were holding on to for security. It's like being in a river, not trusting the river, so you start to put rocks in your pocket. It's like, that's like a really big rock. I really need that to survive this river. So I'm grabbing onto that one. And there's another big rock. In case I lose this rock, I need this rock. So rather than flowing in the river, you're trying to accumulate things to be secure in. And you actually can practice just letting things go, letting things go, letting this moment pass, letting this moment pass, letting all the past pass. Let it pass, let it pass, let it pass. If you tune into it, you explore it, the mind does get oriented where it's not about loss and it's not about fear, it's about relief. And then it's one part of the cycle to make room for very refreshed, clean arisings that you can apply your whole attention to because you're not bogged down by all the things you are unconsciously holding on to, looking for security. So it's very liberating to let things pass because they have the nature to pass. That's why the Buddha put this in the mindfulness discourse, 
and why this refrain, more than anything that he pointed mindfulness at, the body, Vedana, the mind, there's this repeated refrain, watch it arise and watch it pass. Watch it arise and pass. It's much more of a through line of what we're trying to cultivate than any specific place to point your attention. So we're invited to practice with that, to find our relationship to it. It's not something you force, but it might not occur to you if you hadn't prompted your interest to not just reflect upon arising and passing, but actually see if in the stream of experience you can see the fresh arisings and you can see that each moment doesn't actually stay because something new freshly arises. Whatever was there has passed. It's now nighttime outside, the day has passed. In a couple of hours, the whole day will have passed and we'll have our rest. If you've rested well, you're more recharged to actually meet the freshness of the new day. If you held on to today, you'll be tired all night and you won't have room for tomorrow. So it actually is health-inducing to let things arise and pass, to live in the stream, to be oriented to the stream. So with that said, let's take a moment from our listening moment, being in the stream during the talk, And now rest again in something more simple. There are sounds. They're freshly streaming. There's an alive body with freshly arising body sensations. There's dynamic breathing, which always freshly takes in air and then releases, an arising and passing of breath. And there are dynamics of the heart and mind, the moods, the emotions, mental states, and a stream of mental content. This is the river, this is the stream. And this is taking refuge in the stream.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.